All right, you guys. So welcome back to the show. I have uh, a good friend here with me today, uh, J Jason Olivia, correct? Last name? Uh, it's actually pronounced Olivier like Sir Lawrence, but spelled a little oh, differently. It. Yeah. Okay. At the beginning of most of my podcasts, I always talk about how it's impossible for me to pronounce a lot of people's last names. So here we go. Another, another perfect example of, of that case. But um, Jason has been like a holistic uh, health practitioner for a long time already. And he, he actually also worked in the medical industry for a very long time. I think you mentioned like two decades, right? Like close to 20 years. Yeah, a little over yeah. 20 years. Yeah. So he has uh, like a pretty good um, overall view of how health uh, challenges are tackled like across different fields and, and platforms of what's available in America these days. And like I mentioned in a couple of other podcasts I've recently done, um, we'll be talking about, I'll be getting Jason's opinion in general on why uh, just overall like long lasting results or, or just complete resolution of either symptoms, like for example, like any kind of health challenge or any kind of uh, excessive fat gain challenge, why complete resolution is, is just it's very low across the board. So it's, it's very low in my opinion, from what I have observed in the medical industry. I know in the fitness and the holistic industry, it tends to be fairly low as well. So like uh, as a simple example, you know, you, you typically see a lot of people lose a lot of weight, but then, you know, two to three years later, 80 to 90% of them are, are back to exactly where they started, if not heavier than ever, ever before. So, um, so yeah, I wanted to kind of dive into like a few different topics that Jason get his opinions on it and just kind of see where we go from there. That's good. So, so let's, let's kind of, let's start with, um, let's start with your career in the, in the medical industry and working in the hospital and then kind of just go from there. Uh, sure. Thanks, Eugene. Um, so most of my time was spent in pediatric hospitals and academic medical centers across the country. I uh, spent most of my time consulting. As a senior consultant, I would work with surgeons, physicians, scientists, researchers, nurses, and most of my work was around systems engineering, systems thinking, uh, around the science of high reliability, and high reliability industries, and applying such as nuclear power, uh, aviation, even forest firing forest fighting, uh, forest firefighting. And so taking those principles and that they've learned uh, through the science of high reliability uh, to apply them into uh, the healthcare setting so that we would deliver the right medication at the right dose at the right frequency, et cetera. Uh, along with the leadership that is necessary in order to support a safe and effective culture within a hospital setting. So I'd work with teams and design those systems to think about from a system standpoint, as well as from an organizational culture standpoint to achieve those set in outcomes that they were looking to achieve. Um, then that also led into administrative roles where I was formerly in leadership roles within hospitals, um, guiding and directing a lot around quality improvement science methods around the uh, leadership methods and high reliability science, high reliability science concepts. So that was where bulk of my work has been the last, and then also the last piece is around accreditation. So there's a joint commission. Uh, it's, a, it's an accrediting body in the United States, well, globally, but in particular, they do most, most of their work here in the States around accrediting entities in regards to the quality and effectiveness of our supposed healthcare system. 
Gotcha. Okay. Well, can you kind of describe your, uh, I guess your your day to day tasks that you that you did at um, at the hospital and, and stuff of that sort? Sure. So, um, well, there were team meetings naturally. Uh, there was also visiting. For example, I did a, a project in the neonatal intensive care unit. So I would spend maybe half a day. Uh, what they call the NICU, neonatal intensive care unit. And so what I would do is I would walk a mile, so to speak, metaphorically in the shoes of the bedside team, the physician, the nurse, the respiratory therapist, et cetera. So I basically embedded myself with them to live, eat and breathe and sleep the processes and how they interacted, how they communicated, how they didn't communicate, uh, how did handoffs of information, handoffs of medication, handoffs of equipment work and not work. Uh, how orders were prescribed, how the pharmacist down, uh, down at the basement would organize, fill, validate that it is correct, and get the medication up in a timely manner. So I would observe all of those processes and systems, and I would track and trace that. I would design data collection systems. Uh, I would then aggregate and then segment the data in a way that could be understood about variation and process variation and individual performance variation issues. Uh, I would facilitate team meetings to say, okay, our current process looks like this. And our goals are to achieve that. So how do we take this data and how do we redesign our processes in order to get the intended outcomes that we say that we want? Uh, and then we would redesign and I would facilitate team meetings, redesign those processes. And then we would take that redesigned process. We would put it into real life application on a small scale and begin testing that with one patient on one day. So maybe it might be something around medication delivery. So we would test the new design for one day with one patient on how to do that medication delivery system from all of those respective touch points that we've identified. Uh, learn from that, it was called a plan, do, study, act cycle, or some call it a plan, do, check, act cycle. And it was a way to systematically and with the scientific method test different ideas around how to design our processes to account for all the variables that people interact with. So there's people variables, there's process variables, there's a lot of different other language that I could use. That, but in the simple terms, just understanding people and process and how we interact so that we can identify where does the variation occur. Uh, why does one physician do it this way and another physician do it that way when it's on the weekend versus a weekday? Where, uh, how do physicians who are newbies, so to speak, compare to uh, an, an attending physician who's been there for 20 years and how do they do it? So I would diagnose all of that. Uh, we would test those ideas, identify what worked and what didn't work. We would adapt it and then test it on the next patient again the next day. And if that worked to our intended outcome, then if it was reproducible and repeatable, then we'd start scaling it up and say, okay, well, today we're going to test it on three patients. Today, we, then after we had success with that, we tested it with 10 patients and then 20 patients. Next thing you know, we would do the whole unit would be following the same standardized process, looking for the variables that made it where it would fail. So we were looking for failures of why the design would work. Um, and then from there, once we identified all the variables and we accepted a certain level of reliability, we would implement it, operationalize it into that unit. And then if it was applicable, I would help spread that across the whole system, the whole hospital and do that systematically, just like I've outlined. So 
make a long story short, that was a large part of my day and how I tried to think about systems thinking. That's one part. The other part of it was uh, one-to-one executive coaching uh, sessions with the unit leaders, the, phys- the leaders meeting the head nurse and the head physician and do a lot of executive coaching with them around how do they lead for change and how are they embodying change agents, concepts and principles that would reinforce the culture that was necessary to ensure the processes that we were designing would be followed and executed uh, as intended or as the new system was intended to function. So two-pronged approach. Gotcha. Are most of the people like coming into the hospitals there because of, um, you know, like say like car accidents, for example, or some kind of emergency situation like that, or are they coming in or are the bulk of the people coming into the hospital um, due to like poor like lifestyle choices or poor nutritional choices? Like, do you know the statistics on that? Um, I don't know the statistics uh, on that. I would could share with you that um, we would address pediatric issues across the whole board. So car accidents, trauma, um, you name it. We had a trauma unit. We had a helicopter that would uh, go to sites and et cetera, that would triage those things. Uh, it was a full-blown medical center. So we had a typical emergency room from uh, injuries and, and acute illnesses and viruses and stuff like that, along with uh, asthma issues and can't breathe. Uh, then you have a lot of inpatients with chronic disease issues, such as asthma, um, that was definitely more lifestyle driven. And then we had a lot of specialty services. So kids who are dealing with cancer, uh, which we could say is lifestyle, yes. Uh, and uh, acute kidney injuries. Um, we had all, all kinds of different things where there would be uh, organ replacements, uh, so really high specialty issues um, and things such as, you know, kids who were born without a bowel. Uh, and so how do we reconstruct that and, and et cetera. So the high end specialty kind of general pediatric hospital setting where we took on everyone and everything, if anything. And then you had, you know, the acute trauma issues, uh, et cetera, as well. Gotcha. Well, what, what kind of, you're there for a very long time. What kind of made you want to pivot and, and, try basically almost the complete opposite of the medical approach, you know, like holistic, uh, holistic lifestyle coaching. Well, uh, my philosophy is that typically there's something that stirs within our hearts and minds about something that's poking, uh, poking us. And so for me, that was my personal journey, um, worked long hours, wasn't eating well. Um, my weight was elevated, um, night sweats, um, taking three to four hour naps on Saturday and Sunday to recover from my burnout, using coffee as a stimulant. And I would say is I was normal. <laughs> my, my behaviors were really super normal. And um, my dad was getting older and getting more sick. Uh, I saw the writing on the wall in regards to how many medications he was on and taking. Uh, and then I just, um, I don't know. I had a moment and I swung my feet on the other side of the bed and I just said, I, if I keep on this pathway, I'm going to end up like my dad. That was the poke that I gave myself. And do I really want that? And what ways can I avoid that? So that just led my own journey to health. Um, I happened to have my chiropractor was a fan of Paul Check and had his book, How to Eat, Move and Be Healthy on the coffee table. I would read it. 
we had a local Czech practitioner that I connected with. And next thing you know, I started getting into holistic health just little by little. So I just changed my diet and I just would add one new thing. And next thing you know, it just became a massive domino effect. It's all of those medical symptoms that I just shared with you went away. I had more energy than I know what to do with. I didn't have coffee. I didn't have night sweats. Um, I didn't need to sleep and I felt really good. Um, and then that shift was dramatic for me. And I went from like 310 pounds down to 220 uh, over the course of a year. And it became more of an embedded lifestyle for me. And then retrospectively, then I, I couldn't help but notice everyone around me and the gap that that created, even with working with hospital executives and uh, GI docs and neuro top neurologists in, in the country. Um, et cetera. And next thing you know, you know, they were still drinking Coca-Colas, uh, still eating, uh, you know, processed foods, et cetera. And then I, I just figured, you know, there's got to be more to this thing called health. Uh, a lot of executives that I was working with were burnt out, were fried. There's a lot of research around physician burnout and the hours that they uh, are involved in, as well as with nurses. And there's a lot of stress, uh, psychological stress, a lot of pressure uh, on different fronts. Uh, so that just naturally morphed me into my executive coaching morphed in and of itself, not only around being a leader and how to change and how to drive for influence. It started incorporating concepts of how are you showing up for yourself so that you can lead in a way that represents yourself with, with integrity with where you want to embody health and wellness. And those are a lot of good and fun, challenging uh, conversations, I think. That ultimately led into me getting more and more into part-time holistic health coaching. And then they just ultimately became a very natural waxing and weaning of the, the health coaching versus getting, getting more, less and less, so to speak, out of um, the hospital setting. Yeah, I've noticed, uh, like, for example, I had an epiphany moment like you as well upon graduating from college, actually. I think I was like, I tried to stay in college as long as I could. So it took me like five or six years to graduate. Uh, but eventually they're like, you got to go, man. So I was like, oh, you know, <laughs> you know? Right. they're like, you're totally out of classes and you're done, you know? Right. And I'm like, ah, damn, got to face the real world now. Uh, but yeah, I had, I was just uh, kind of like you, I was basically coaching like super part-time through college. I was looking. I was looking through, I was looking just to have like a job, like I actually enjoyed, but had like very flexible hours. So I could devote myself to like athletics and, and studying, which are two things like I really enjoyed doing. And towards the end of college, uh, it was like at the end of uh, tail end of uh, 2009, you know, the huge mortgage collapse, mm -hmm. like everyone was like losing their jobs and afraid of like, they're losing their houses or whatever or savings plan. And just afraid of just grabbing at any job opportunity they can get, you know? Uh, but the one thing I learned from just doing coaching, like very part-time throughout college is I got to work with uh, people, in, you know, that are like 35, 40, 45, 50, that took like the corporate route of one way or another of like really long hours, you know, um, a lot of social politics you got to deal with, a lot of like nauseating bureaucracy, et cetera, et cetera. And I saw kind of like what being in that environment for a long period of time can do to your mental and physical health. And I thought like, man, also like those kind of hours, like how am I going to be able to get all my workouts in, sleep adequately, get all my stretching in, take care of my continued education, 
have a family relationship as well, have like a romantic relationship as well. I'm like, dude, you're not going to be able to do like any of this stuff that's required to be like a healthy, well-functioning individual. And uh, I told my friends a lot of, uh, when I was graduating, I'm like, oh, you know, I'm going to just go work on my own. I'm just going to work like three days a week, like three and a half days a week. Cause I feel like that's, what's needed to be able to have enough time to do like continued education to work out. And they all thought like, I was like super crazy or stupid. They're like, no, man, that's not how life works. It's like, uh, you basically, you got to get a job and everyone is doing this, you know what I mean? And then work these long hours, like you kind of hinted at, it's like normalized, you know, mm-hmm. it's almost, uh, what's the, what's a good phrase. It's almost kind of like, you brag about at one point, how many hours you work, you know? And it's like the philosophy of, I got this line from Jerry Kuykendall, uh, one of the Czech guys, we did the book club with him. Mm-hmm. And um, he's like, oh, you brag about like, if you're not dying for your job, you're not doing your job, you know? And that kind of philosophy or psychology that's very pathological in my opinion has been total, totally normalized. And in fact, almost like looked up to, you know? I don't, I don't um, know what your take is with that. And I see that totally in physicians and nurses as well. Ironically, they're trying to promote like a health system, but they themselves, uh, from my observation, the bulk majority of them are just like very, very unhealthy. And uh, as well, medical school, perfect example, working their students to the death, although probably the bulk of them academically understand the importance of being able to manage your central nervous system appropriately with not like crazy hours of work and poor diets, et cetera, et cetera. I appreciate that. Uh, we, my, part of my background is in psychology. So we would label that norm, normalized deviancy. Uh, in my opinion, you know, we would just normalize just when you just deviate so far from what the human body needs to function and needs to thrive in. Uh, and we, you take a step back sometimes and you just realize how far we've gotten away from some of the fundamental principles uh, of what health is. I think that's why most people in healthcare are really challenged. To, if you were to ask them what's health, it's a really simple, straightforward question. What is your definition of health or what is the healthcare system itself supposed a definition of health? I have found time and time again, um, the answers are woefully inadequate. Uh, confusion, uncertainty, uh, a lack of confidence and clarity are ways in which I would describe that. And ultimately, they just have to turn to language that is classical in in a sense of disease management. We uh, try to keep people healthy and safe and and enjoy life. And I just think that that uh, it comes across as um, a Band-Aid behind it a lot of uncertainty and really struggle to really answer that question. And I asked that question, I've asked that question of, you know, chief medical officers. I mean, people who've been in the business for a long time uh, and I get a lot of hemming and hawing when they themselves really can't answer that for themselves. It's a pretty uh, interesting paradox. I find it that healthcare struggles uh, to define what is health with clarity um, and, and uh, clarity and succinctness, I think. I mean, surely like you were in the industry for a long time and I kind of interviewed a few doctors about this as well. Um, I mean, they're, they're very smart people and surely they know like 
it's in the bulk majority of cases, I mean, it's just not right. Like, first of all, a person comes to you and they're, they kind of see you as a, as a credible health figure. You know, most people perceive um, medical doctors as the one-stop shop for anything, you know, anything health-related. And they come to you and I mean, a lot of times they get like a 10, 15 minute assessment, maybe. Uh, and surely they know, I mean, there's a lot more they could be doing for the person than just giving them like, oh, you have tremendous anxiety and stress. Okay, here's like an anti-anxiety medication, you know, I'll see you in like two months, we'll see how you're doing. And then like, I mean, surely they understand that just a lot of times that kind of model, all it's doing is just facilitating and allowing the belief system of the psychology that led to all those problems to begin with, which would inevitably led to lead to a tremendous amount of more problems in the future, especially as complications from all these medications begin to arise later in years. And then you need medications for those, the side effects of those medications, and then medication for the side effects of those medications that are treating the side effects of the other medication. I mean, uh, you don't need a health degree or an understanding of health to understand that there's something not working there. I appreciate that, uh, Eugene. So um, this is not a quick fix. I've had uh, this conversation as well, something along those lines. You really have to get into medical schools. You have to address the way physicians are actually trained and it will take many years after that paradigm shifted, if it ever occurs, for those to become the uh, attendings uh, and in, in our hospital systems or the primary care doctors. Um, we, I was shocked when, and I worked at an academic medical center uh, at a very well-known uh, center, and uh, and we would deal. I would work all the time with interns aka medical students uh, and going through their four years of residency. What I would share with you is when I would actually teach them part of what's called quality improvement science methods, right? So it's a long, nice term to just simply say is, how do you make improvements to the system so that the system can reliably reproduce and repeat itself, right? And so we get into systems thinking and systems design. Well, I asked one of the faculty who was a physician said, in, and they taught medical students in medical school, most, and I've asked this a couple of times, different, they collect different data points. And I said, are you guys never at all, or gals, never taught about systems thinking as it relates that the body is a system of systems? And he looked at me very plain and simple and said, we don't teach physicians and students to think and understand the body that way. We look at it very siloed. So when they go do an intern on, um, the GI system, it's all about the GI system. They have no concept of upstream implications for uh, inputs into the gut health and the outputs of gut health and how that plays into the next uh, system, et cetera. And I was astonished. I was astonished that they did not look and were not taught that the body is a system of systems in, in an intricate web, so to speak, of design. And if anything, I hope people can take away and, and appreciate that that's who you're talking to. You're talking to most of the time a physician who, right or wrong, good or bad, is not, has not been trained that way. And so if they're not trained that way, it is hard to evolve into that thinking unless you learn through um, consequences of seeing what's occurring in the, in the health field. 
so that there to me lies a, a big opportunity is getting involved or somehow addressing the medical education and how they are taught and, see, and therefore how they will see and perceive the world. So. But can't you as like a practitioner, I mean, after 10 years, you know, the bulk majority of your clients are coming back like sicker and sicker every year because the etiology of what led to all those issues is never addressed ever. I mean, don't you like kind of like what's like I need to change something or what's the point of my job? I'm supposed to be a healthcare provider, but most of my clients are just getting sicker and sicker every year. And I'm shoving all these pills at them and they still get even more sicker and sicker. Like, I'm just wondering, like, how do they justify, like, keep coming back to work, you know? You know, sometimes uh, I, I appreciate those questions. And so how I process that question is something like this is how do I, as an individual, do the same thing with my life and where I've been at in my life and my journey. Um, and sometimes I can honestly say is while walking a mile in their shoes, uh, I have my blind spots too. And I think if I just do a minor tweak to something that I've been trained to do or thought to do as the quote gold standard, uh, inherent within that, brings forth certain blinders and, and blind spots that are inherent in the system. Um, so in high reliability science, there's a principle that we teach. Um, it's called reluctance to simplify. And it just simply means that high reliability industries do really well with not simplifying answers to problems and solutions. And if anyone sees something put forth as an easy solution, relatively speaking, is an immediate inherent challenge to say, it can't be that simple. What other ways are we blind to what the issues really are? And they really get good in, as, in, as an industry at asking and looking for blind spots. And the identification of blind spots is something that is actually celebrated which is an inverse of what happens a lot of times is the more that you're resilient and you do workarounds and you create more and more workarounds, you're considered a resilient employee. But in fact, you're just creating more and more variation into the system that eventually will compound over time. So I use this reluctance to simplify is because ultimately physicians are taught not to, do, not to utilize that principle as a default. And so they get into a kind of a myopic perspective at times about what is, again, back to that question, what is health? And is it, and it's around disease management and the working assumptions that we take on inherently bring with them certain blind spots that we don't even know that we're blind to. So that's how I think about the answer to your question is I try to internalize that and personalize it to myself and say, why would a physician who's been trained in the way they have been trained um, not feel the consequences of that medical model? How might they be rationalizing that this is the best practice? How might they want to avoid considering and looking under the rock um, or leaning into the pain of feeling uncomfortable? Because quite frankly, Eugene, I've, I've spent a lot of time with physicians and nurses, and they do get upset with not being able to help somebody. I mean, they have a big rescuer, in my experience, archetype. They want to, you know, they see everyone as victims and I want to rescue. And if they, I would project, if they were to see themselves as not being able to um, embody their rescuer archetype, that brings with them a lot of pain. 
and a lot of suffering, then they're going to suffer over other people's suffering. And then it feels very, I would suspect, overwhelming. And I just draw some of those conclusions from first my own experiences with life and consequences. And in my experience of having conversations with healthcare providers who I think have and feel like have good intent, but may not have the ingredients to bake a really good cake or that there might be other ingredients in which I could look at life and, and consider how to understand what's going on in the human body and what, what alternatives could I explore and consider. So those are some, some things I throw out there for consideration. Well, that brings me to the next question. I do have like a great friend. I actually look up to him a tremendous amount, like super, super smart guy. I've known him since high school and he became like an emergency room physician, uh, ER or whatever they call it. I don't know the exact titles, but he was telling me one time we went out to lunch and he was just telling me like how, as you hinted at, how he genuinely, and I do feel he's like actually a genuinely a good hearted person. That's actually very intelligent also. But he feels like as he got employed, especially by the hospital, uh, just the way that he was kind of forced to practice, he didn't actually like too much. So he said he has like a myriad of rooms. He doesn't even know the patients. Oftentimes he, go off, he goes off the number of the room uh, to remember. He doesn't even know their names. You got to like be there like five, 10 minutes onto the next room, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I do feel like one of the problems is and you know about this way more than I do is, is the fact that you kind of have basically the insurance companies telling uh, the healthcare providers how to practice. And oftentimes the insurance companies are uh, like a business run by businessmen that don't know like anything about health and wellness, basically. And they're basically telling these experts that went to school for like a decade plus, oftentimes do continued education as well, like how to practice. And whenever um, I, I did ask this to a few doctors, I'm like, well, you know, why are you having them telling you how to practice? Because a lot of times, uh, like on some forms online, I would be like, well, you know, you need to spend like a solid uh, two to three hours upon first meeting a patient to really know their situation, their limitations, like what they're actually struggling with to come up with a comprehensive plan to get them from A to B. And oftentimes if they have like even a lot more pathologies of random it might take longer. So I'm like, they're like, well, good luck doing that in like 10 to 15 minutes. Like I would get that reply from a lot of doctors, you know, he's like, oh, try to diagnose all that in 10 to 15 minutes. I'm like, I wouldn't even try because it's not doing the client any justice by doing that. And they deserve, they come to you out of desperation to find a solution to their health problem, whatever they may, whatever that may be. And they kind of, for one vantage point or another, do see that health provider as, as like a savior, you know, the answer to their solution. And the least you can do is spend, you know, like a decent amount of time upon first meeting the person to really get to know them. And any kind of expert health practitioner, like Paul Cech, you mentioned, Stuart McGill, always emphasize, you know, like even McGill, I mean, he specializes in just the lower back. And he says to thoroughly understand what's going on just with low back pathologies, it takes roughly two to three hours of a thorough assessment in just that little area. Uh, and I just, and they don't just, they don't have an answer, you know, they're like, well, that's just the way it is. They kind of fall back to that, you know? And I'm like, well, why are you letting these business guys tell you like how, what to do or how to practice, you know? And they're like, they just don't have an answer. They literally most always just stop talking at that point. I don't know what your take is yeah. on that. 
Um, yeah, it, it's multifactorial, right? It's the medical schools, it's the insurance companies. Um, it is uh, to some degree the commercialization of medication and uh, the medical model from these pharmaceutical companies uh, more equals uh, more profitability. So everyone to some degree is incentivized to do the wrong thing rather than to do the right thing. And I say those terms right and wrong relative. Um, I would also say it does highlight though, Eugene, for me is that yes, do healthcare professionals need to design a system that allows for proper intake and triage and diagnosis and, and offer root solutions to root causes? Absolutely. I would also suggest that the human being, the patient, uh, typically does not want to take responsibility for their actions. And so it is, yes, does, is there an onus on the healthcare system to uh, make itself more available to do the things that you've just mentioned? Absolutely. And yet there's also a really big disconnect with health responsibility and health autonomy. Um, that is definitely a, a gap. So I'll give you a, a one quick story that highlights this. Um, I still have my contacts from, from the hospital systems. So uh, one in particular hospital in the Midwest, their vision was uh, something, let's just say, is... Um, to uh, be the embodiment of child health. Well, if you look at their cafeteria, their version of a cafeteria, it is pizza, processed foods, uh, you name it, right? So they took an intention and gutted the cafeteria and made it their version, which I would say, relatively speaking, was very healthy. And next thing you know, their patient and family satisfaction scores went down. Now that shows up in things like the annual U.S. News and World Report where, you know, every hospital is getting ranked in regards to satisfaction, clinical outcomes, uh, people that they're reaching, et cetera, right? So this hospital went from being ranked as, you know, let's just say number 10 out of 100 to like 12 or 13th or 14th out of 100. I don't remember the exact numbers but they were dinged because their parent satisfaction, because they said basically food was a, uh, was a comfort for when their kid was going under these different procedures and, and, and uh, what have you. And so next thing you know, uh, because of the implications of that, they reintroduced uh, those foods again, those comfort foods. And next thing you know, the scores went back to where they were. So it, I give you that really interesting story that sometimes the hospital system, when they even want to do the right thing, the voice of the customer, as we would call it, um, because of their awareness and how they approach uh, their pain and suffering, look to the hospital, which therefore enables these certain ingrained patterns. And we can get into, okay, well, when they were children, they found comfort foods. And we can get into all of that fun inner child stuff. But at the end of the day, it does work both ways. And so ultimately it's a, it's not as simple. It may not be as complex 
but it may not be as simple. And I would say it's probably geared towards more complex than simple is the answers in multifactorial. So I would just throw that out there as some interesting examples to consider as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, with any relationship, you always have to have two or more people, you know how it goes. Yeah. And th the one thing I was going to mention to kind of side with what you're saying is I feel like a lot of times, just like what you said, basically, but in a different way, just people don't want to look in the mirror and admit to themselves that most of their health problems, if not all of them are just done by themselves, you know, they're doing it to themselves, and they don't want to take responsibility for that. Because oftentimes it, it would mean, for example, quitting that super stressful job, you know, or mm -hmm. getting out of that super stressful relationship or whatever it could mean. And that's oftentimes not going to lie, like hard change. It's hard to do that. But I also tell people like, Hey dude, it's, it's not easy being full of obesity, misery, and disease either. You know, and you live <laughs> with that like every freaking day. And I yeah. feel this is a, this is a relationship that works together because on the one hand you have a patient that doesn't want to admit that they're causing all their own problems. And then on the other hand, you have a person that's able to facilitate that kind of philosophy. You know, it's like, oh, well, mm -hmm. uh, don't worry about taking the rock out of your shoe. I know it's causing you pain. Just take these painkillers for a while, you know, and they'll let you continue to be the dummy that led you to this problem to begin with. And don't worry, eventually the painkillers will cause a decent amount of toxicity in your body two to three years from now and addiction as well. But hey, we have another medication to counter that medication, you know, so you can once again, continue the pathological cycle of being the dummy that led to all the problems that you're having. And it's most always never just your problems. Okay. You, you could only give as much love and energy as you have. So if you don't have health, you don't have love, energy, your family's going to suffer as well. Okay. Uh, it's not just, it's not just impacting that particular person. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if you have anything else to say on that subject. I just. I appreciated your words uh, in many ways and many shades of gray there. So no, at this point, I think you said that you summed it up well, Eugene, for me. I appreciate that. Thank you. Is it true? Like, uh, I don't know if this is true at all or it's kind of conspiracy theory stuff, but is it true? Like basically like the, some people claim like, oh, the pharmaceutical industry bought out the medical school. And they're basically only teaching them in a way to kind of prescribe the medications they're obviously selling and profiting tremendously from. Is that true or is that kind of wishy-washy? Uh, good question. So I would never claim to be an expert at answering this question. I would just say symptomatically, I would say is uh, they're learned to diagnose and, and look at problems through the lens of uh, the anti of that, right? So it usually comes in the form of antibiotic, antimicrobial, um, anti-something, right? To, to address the symptom, to counter the symptom. And that's to me um, an issue in and of itself from a philosophical standpoint. And that's why we can get into the rabbit hole of homeopathy and like like cures like model, which is different than, uh, than what I just mentioned. So do they, I, I, I would say is, that's been my experience symptomatically of looking at it from a, how do we get a diagnosis? And then what is the prescription for it? And it could be in the form of a surgery, it could be in the form of a pill. Yes. It could be in the form of uh, also things of like just getting this kid fluids uh, or 
we need to change their medication because we know more about certain types of medications and then how they interact and what are contraindicators of this medication versus that medication and how do we minimize uh, the collateral damage with certain medications. However, with that said, uh, that's to the best of my ability to share that that to me has been my default experience. Uh, they don't look at, uh, they don't approach it in my experience where the body fundamentally can heal itself if we just remove the, the reasons why it's being disrupted in its own healing processes to begin with. Uh, you know, there's certain tenants within naturopathic physician schools, for example, one of them is that, that the body can and does heal itself when you uh, either get out of the way or be able to absorb nutrients and, and feed the body. Uh, that is not a tenant, as, if you will, that's self-evident, let me say that in the Western model. So those are the things I can share about that, those experiences. What's your take on, I don't even know what happened with the whole Obamacare universal healthcare thing. I didn't keep up with it, but I always had kind of like a, uh, so first, I mean, first and foremost, like literally you don't have to even read a study of the many metabolic studies on pubmed.gov that show like basically nine out of 10 Americans these days are metabolically unhealthy. But you could also just through observational study, go outside literally anywhere today and nine out of 10 people you run into anywhere are basically full of obesity, disease, mental and physical pain to some clinical level. Mm -hmm. and, and I just don't get like, they've been relying on symptom management for, for a lot of these illnesses for so long, it's just getting worse and worse. So I really don't understand the uh, implication or the need for a universal healthcare program that once again, just fuels this symptom management kind of approach to, to health issues, you know? Um, I just, I think like if they just took like a small, small fraction of the money that universal healthcare would cost, which isn't producing great results, you know, it's just kind of throwing very harmful drugs and that's what they are. They're drugs. You know, a lot of people kind of mask it and say it's medicine and this and that sort of, but it's basically, it's basically a drug at problems. And it's like, man, you can take like a small fraction of that money and just reinvested in basically re-educating kids like elementary through high school, maybe even through college. I don't think the college part is necessary, but just like I mentioned to you, I mean, just educating them on not even mastery, not even expert level, but just a general understanding of what you would cover in uh, IMS one or HLC one at the Czech Institute, for example, it doesn't have to be at the Czech Institute. What I'm saying is like, if you teach kids, you know, nonviolent forms of communication, the importance of identifying your core values and living true to them, uh, using movement as medicine, you know, what organic food is or biodynamic food and factory farm food. So at least they know and they can make their decision based on like what they need at that time in their life. The importance of staying hydrated, the importance of sleeping and not falling into this like uh, work hard, play hard type of idiocy that ages you and et cetera, and causes all sorts of disease. If you just get kids to like have a fundamental understanding, not even expert level, just a fundamental understanding of those concepts, pretty much 90% of the health problems we're dealing with now as, as a country would disappear within a generation. And ironically, you can still have a universal healthcare program because way less people would use it. They would use it in case of an emergency, you know, like a real emergency, like a car accident, or whatever, you know, sometimes life is random and 
the medical industry does really excel in emergency situations. I'm not taking that, that away from them. I feel that's where they really stand out. But I don't know, I don't know your take on that. It just seems like the obvious solution that's way less costly and actually would benefit people way more. Uh, thanks, Eugene. Um, so what comes up for me in this moment is that in order to do something like that, in a sense, we would need to wake up. Uh, we would have to be willing to consider that what we're doing fundamentally is uh, either wrong or misguided, whatever word works. Uh, it's pathological. Uh, okay, I can dance. That with word the works. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, and, and as a result of that, uh, there's a lot of shame and fear that comes with acknowledging our model is not generating the outcomes we need to, um, and we need to be able to be honest and vulnerable with that. Some people would then jump on the bandwagon and say, "Well, then, therefore, you can't be trusted." Therefore, what future advice are you gonna give us now that would uh, be credible, so to speak? Uh, so there's all kinds of, and that's why I think there's all kinds of messaging management, language is important because all of this ultimately, I spent most of my time doing with myself and in the presence of other people and other leaders is it's ego, egoic management. We're managing egos, managing messages, managing exhaustive amount of time and energy trying to manage uh, people's perceptions. And um, I think ultimately to come back to directly is it would introduce a lot of pain and shame and fear into the individual and collective psyche. And I think we would have probably, I would suspect uh, an identity crisis well, then what the hell is healthcare? What do we do? Like, what, what function did we, do we serve? Have we served? Um, how have we gotten away from nature and the fundamentals of, of human biology and chemistry? Um, how have we given our asses away to these entities that want to do a synthetic uh, GMO-based lifestyle and turn people into uh, synthetic organisms? Uh, is my story. So, you know, you have all of those things and then the next thing you know, it becomes a compounded, painful, suffering type uh, experience for, for individuals and collectives. And I think like in any work that, that onion is probably not gonna get peeled too fast and too hard. Most people, uh, most people are comfortable with their misery. And so we have a little fun saying sometimes uh, that I think we've heard, both heard is, uh, disturbing the comfort and comfort the disturbed uh, on some application of that uh, might be worthwhile exploring for us in, in applying to your example, your question. Well, really quick, you mentioned, you mentioned a few good things that we can touch on here. So you mentioned they're comfortable. Now, I wouldn't say they're comfortable. I would say more there's like a decent amount of cognitive dissonance in the sense that they've been living that way for so long, they've just habituated to it which mm -hmm. the human being generally tends to do. You know, they get used to whatever environment they live in for prolonged periods of time, whatever that may be. Because a lot of these uh, people that you're referring to are like comfortable, for example. So, you know, the HAQ from, uh, mm -hmm. from HLC2. Uh, for the listeners is basically like a, like a large, long questionnaire that goes into gut health, musculoskeletal health, uh, emotional health, et cetera, et cetera. 
And a lot of times, like, for example, when people come into coaching, one good example is I used to give grocery store tours when writing my second book to help master the material. And sometimes there will be a person that comes up to me and um, they would say like, hey, man, I've been eating this factory farm food and this junk food my whole entire life and I'm completely fine. Meanwhile, the guy's like 35, for example, obese on three different medications, kind of walking with a limp because he has like a pinched nerve in his lower back, et cetera, et cetera. He doesn't even comprehend the, the amount of like pathology and misery he's living in. He genuinely, actually, that he's fine. You know, it's not like he's make-believe or whatever. And then when you have a lot of these uh, people that, that come in for coaching, they're like, I'm eating healthy, I feel healthy. And they take the HAQ and they're like in the red in like literally almost every section, uh, you know? And it's like, dude, it's... Um, so to get back to your point, I don't know if they're like comfortable or there's like a decent amount of disconnect because they genuinely just don't know how to get out of that level of misery. And to justify that, they've just normalized it, you know? And that's what, in a sense, one of the things that actually keeps them in that cycle of misery over and over and over again. And then they teach their kids to be the same exact way. Uh, uh, thanks, um, Eugene, on that. Um, for me, I, I would say is we are comfortable with our discomfort. We're comfortable with the pain. We've, we've normalized ourselves to our lifestyle and we don't really know any different is how I would propose that. So yes, there's, is there a tremendous amount of disassociation um, and repression and suppression of, of life? Absolutely. And to me, that's neurologically based in that we want as an organism to survive. And this is uh, how we've conditioned ourselves under the perception and the illusion that this is what it takes in order to survive. And we just perpetuate that moving forward. I think and feel like if we were to be honest, uh, if we peel back the curtain too fast, I think we would become catatonic in regards to just how much pain and suffering we have and perpetually are experiencing in this given moment. So to me, it is, uh, I think that if you will, the benefit of our ego parts and pieces, so to speak, if we use that language, is that it allows us to expose ourselves to what we've been suppressing, ignoring, disassociating from little by little. And even when we quote, feel stretched or pushed out of our quote, comfort zone, um, to me, that's there's an opportunity of functional adaptation, emotionally or physiologically speaking, to the environment so that it's more uh, realistic of what's really occurring, and yet uh, not so real that um, we become obliv uh, obliviated from being able to really deal with that. So, because we don't have the skills, the cognitive, emotional, mental, intuitive, spiritual skills to navigate our exposure to stuff. And, you know, for example, like um, not to divert too much, but I mean, having done plant medicine, you know, if there isn't a certain amount of inner work, um, you could be exposed to it with under the guidance of plant medicine and lose your orientation and, you know, forget a whole lot of things about who or what you perceive yourself to be and have a hard time putting your pieces back together to, for integration purposes. So I think there's a, there's a, 
as they say, there's a there's a pro and a con to all of the things in which we're experiencing. And I would offer that you know maybe it would be helpful to incrementally continue to shine the light or reflect the mirror that um, allow people to be challenged with their label of, oh, I'm comfortable. Like you said with that example, that guy being 35 and, and I feel fine and I'm on three medications. I would say symptomatically, you're, you're probably right. Uh, they're not in touch with how they're, how, what the body is really telling them because they would probably be overwhelmed and not know, may not have the skills to, to manage um, what they might really, what might really be going on. Hi everyone. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. I'm curious, have you ever been confused by the labels in the grocery store? In Yevgeny's book, he demystifies the difference between caged, cage-free, free-range, and pasture-raised meats. He also covers how to avoid GMOs, source high-quality water, fish, supplements, and other related topics. It's a beautifully illustrated, non-technical read that comes with a comprehensive video series and other extended learning materials. Jump on Amazon and check out the book titled Anti-Factory Farm Shopping Guide by Evgeny Trefkin. Now let's dive back into the podcast. Yeah. Well, what, what's your take on... Well, I have like a few things too. Like, I don't know if... Uh, I have an issue with a lot of people and occasionally this is definitely, most definitely the case, but it's like so rare. I have an issue with a lot of people doing the whole scapegoat, like, oh, it's my genetics to have like anxiety or my genetics to be very overweight or, you know, my genetics, ABC, whatever. And I feel like, sure, genetics lays the foundation, but you have to have environmental triggers to kind of give rise to those genetic, uh, genetic issues, you know, like first, I mean, any one of these topics is like a podcast in and of itself. I'm just going to go over it briefly. Mm -hmm. and of course, I'm going to miss a lot of points here. Uh, but like, for example, um, I can easily say, and I haven't had doctors tell me this before. Oh, you're just like genetically inclined to be like anxious. I had a lot of social anxiety at my younger age and just not knowing any better and not knowing any other solution. I went to, you know, like a medical doctor and I told them like, Oh, you know, I have anxiety. I have trouble dating or giving presentation presentations at school with projects I need to give because they just get too anxious. And I almost like freeze up, you know, it's like that level of anxiety. And he's like, Oh, just take this medication, you know? And I didn't know any better, but already, like I kind of knew on the back of my head that that's not the right approach. You know what I mean? Like I knew there was something wrong with it. I just mm -hmm. didn't, didn't quite know what, so I, I didn't take it. And uh, the path I took was very difficult, but I spent years taking like improv classes, acting classes to overcome like stage fright. I forced myself to get into like corporate health lectures which were like almost deathly frightening in the beginning where like my back was like completely drenched after like a single 30 minute presentation. Uh, but then after a few years of doing that, like I've totally overcome like the social anxiety, you know? And I just, I don't know where I would even be if I, in a myriad of other things, I learned how to manage my central nervous system better, how to eat better, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of other issues. Uh, but I just don't know like where I would have, ended up if I would have went, just took that anti-anxiety medication because I wouldn't have ever developed the social skills necessary, et cetera, et cetera. So. Yeah. Um, 
that's a pretty important uh, lesson, I think. And I, and I recall my own versions of those, Eugene, about uh, what, what I take away from that story is, is that at the end of the day, whatever comes up for you in the form of a trigger, a stress response, uh, how adaptive can you be to be curious and have the courage to look beyond the, the symptom? and begin, begin that process of peeling the, those layers, uh, even, as, even as young individuals. And how that, I'll say problem solving, opportunity approaching uh, to life is, can be systemic in, in all phases of life. Uh, just being curious and having the courage to ask some questions about what potentially could be the source of this and how can I adapt the, adapt and deal with this with practice and time under tension in a way that gives me the, uh, an opportunity to do this more organically uh, rather than uh, bypassing, popping a pill or, or doing some, some idea that, that might be helpful on the surface, but never facilitates one to acquire the skills to navigate life is what I, what I took away from that, that example. Yeah, and I feel like just like the medicine approach, like solely just relying on that, it just doesn't work. I, I feel in my opinion, I mean, it would be one thing if it actually genuinely worked, but it doesn't work. It's like the, the problems manifest itself tenfold, like a few years later, if they're, not, if they're not dealt with. I've never seen anyone really have like a good resolution of symptoms just relying on medicine. They just get worse and worse year after year. You know, you can see it in their facial expression and the way they look. Uh, their behavioral patterns become uh, like worse and worse, you know, it's like, um, I just don't know, but. Yeah, I, well, you know, this gets into, to some degree, what I think a lot of clinicians in my experience deal with. So if a patient comes to you today and says, here are my symptoms, and you actually give, if you had the space to work with them and say, here's the root cause, and the root solutions are look at your shit and process your shit, so to speak. They might flip you literally the bird and, and metaphorically. Yes, literally. <laughs> and they would say they might flip you the bird and say, "I'm not ready. I'm. I'm I don't want to do that." So then the physician is in a little bit of a of a double bind. What now do I do with this patient who's not willing to? Uh, explore themselves and deal with things at the root cause. Now they can do informed consent and say, I can give you this pill to suppress those symptoms. And I'm going to explain as thoroughly as I can that that is masking, that's not a solution and it's gonna cause more downstream implications and you're gonna get worse. They may still choose that option. So as a physician or as a clinician or anything, uh, even within yourself, then you just do that and say, okay, well, what am I willing to do now in that role as a healthcare provider for this patient? Do I say, well, go see somebody else because I'm not going to prescribe you something that is uh, not going to be the solution to the problem. That's one option. And some clinicians do that say, I only work with this type of population. That's it. Uh, another one would say is I'm going to provide that script and I will have this conversation repeatedly with them for the next several years or however long as it takes. 
Uh, and I'm sure there's, you know, there's, there's all kinds of dozens of approaches that a, that a clinician can, can approach within that continuum. So, um, yeah, I, I, for me, it boils down to uh, the saving grace that I feel like I can deal with is me. And how do, how do I experience myself? And how do I see myself and everyone that I coach uh, and people who I don't coach? And, uh, you know, as Carl Jung would say, is the triggers, I'm paraphrasing, but some version of the triggers that you have about someone is a reflection of your shadow parts and pieces that you haven't come to terms with. So, um, and at the same token, the other side of that is not to become indifferent and just it is what it is. And uh, I think it's also um, maybe a compensation for the, the, the pain and suffering that one might experience because of that approach. So I, I ultimately would say is it, for me, it's about me and dealing with my own stuff and what comes up for me and how I can look at myself and how I can look at myself through the lens of other people and offer um, an invitation. And that's why I always liked the language that we have shared in some teachings and trainings that we've been to together around invitation. And, and, and inviting curiosity and courage as an antidote to the typical shame and fear that people are, are typically motivated by. So that seems to be working for me as at least as of late. I don't, talk to me in a year from now, it might be a different story. I don't know. So uh, for listeners, this is a radio, so you're only going to hear Jason's voice. But if you see him, he's like 50 years old, but he really looks like he's like 25 or something. Okay, so he's doing something <laughs> right. I really thought you were like a lot younger. That's why I mentioned like, oh man, you really got to be on top of your sleep if you want intensive workouts, you know, like as if you would agree because you're 35 as well, but you're not, you know, <laughs> but I'm like, damn, surprise to me. But yeah, to, to mention it is a two-way road. Like I've had some of my physician friends tell me like they refuse to prescribe medication to some medications to some patients that would come in their office. And then their patients would kind of threaten to leave them like a bad review, like on Yelp or something of that sort, um, or just kind of like, oh, what if I... Uh, what if I die because I wasn't prescribed this medication, you know, and then it's like malpractice on your part or some BS of that sort. So it's totally, uh, totally a two-way road, yeah. uh, two-way road there. Well, what's, what's your take? I feel like with the last two years, especially this whole entire um, like COVID-19 situation was the epitome of how addicted people are to symptom management and how addicted mm -hmm. like society is systemically to that approach in the sense that it's almost like illegal to talk about being healthy these days, you know? Uh, absolutely. Um, I, I would say the idea that there's um, one solution for billions of people's problem ought to, I would hope, raise a red flag for anybody that can see the forest from the trees sometimes. Um, so that to me is a clear red flag. The idea that we can um, take this one medical procedure and get ourselves out of anything is the epitome, I think, of what you're talking about, is the idea that uh, we will just be dealing with people's symptomatic issues and never really have the conversation or have a campaign 
you know, the, the whole idea around campaigning is around social distancing, six feet, where, you know, use the mask, even double mask and get the jab and get the boosters. And all of those things have been so ingrained uh, on all media, all mediums uh, in all ways. And I don't, I can't recall anything remotely close to a campaign that says, drink good quality water, get good sleep, have one or two stress management techniques, stop eating sugar and processed foods and eat clean whole foods, um, you know, et cetera. And, you know, make sure you check your vitamin D levels and, and get them high or appropriately high within the, uh, within the functional medicine range. Uh, we don't even talk about those terms and have a relentless drumbeat about those lifestyle factors that we know, uh, according even to the data sources that, uh, that are interesting, uh, aka the CDCs and their own data and other research has pointed to the idea that uh, lifestyle, comorbidities, uh, age, which I predict is associated with age because of people's long-term uh, misuse of their body, are all significant driving factors, risk factors for hospitalizations and severe COVID. And, uh, and vitamin D levels uh, naturally is a symptom of them not taking care of themselves and getting the right nutrients and the ability to absorb nutrients. So all of that to me is, this has been um, an epitome of our conversation to some degree about how we, what is the problem how do we diagnose the problem at its root cause? And how do we genuinely offer medical root solutions? And I think that they've been woefully inadequate uh, and it truly highlights that they're really into symptom management. And then what will happen is at some point, the sun will set with, to some degree with COVID in the sense of how acute we're dealing with it now. And eventually they will never address the lifestyle factors uh, associated with what makes people vulnerable in the first place to have a severe response or reaction to COVID. And then we're equally sub subject, uh, subjective um, to the very next virus that comes, whether it's a year, five years, 10 years, 50 years from now, whatever the duration is, uh, the, the population is equally as vulnerable. We haven't uh, done any of the work that is necessary in order to address those, those vulnerabilities. So for me, it's, um, it's a very dangerous time in some regards. One perspective is that people have been reinforced. This, this model is just do this thing, uh, do this medical procedure and, and you're, you're, you're gonna be okay. And that's not been proven to be the case. And, um, it just leads us down a rabbit hole, Eugene, and I, I think it's it's concerning. Yeah, it's it's like I always say, sick people cannot make healthy decisions or they will yeah, be that. sick. And first and foremost, before anyone says literally anything about, I hear some people like, oh, I've known some healthy people that got COVID and ended up in the hospital. No, you don't know any healthy people because if you look up metabolic studies in the US, you'll see that nine out of 10 Americans aren't even metabolically healthy even if they're skinny, just because you're skinny doesn't mean literally anything. So, and like, like I said in the beginning of our show, like don't look up these studies, don't go to pubmed.gov and know how to read English, it's okay, if that's too difficult. Just go outside literally anywhere in America. And like I say, so often, because it needs to be said often, 
like nine out of 10 people you run into these days are full of obesity and disease and full of mental and physical pain. And it's like completely normal. And one thing that really kind of ticked me off the most is not the fact of these getting a vaccine or not. Just, if you want to get it, get it. I have probably more vaccines having lived in India and China than probably the average American will ever have. My issue was like, dude, people bragging about getting the vaccine and then you see them at a fast food place. You see them still working themselves to death with long, stressful hours that are definitely suppressing their immune system, putting their central nervous system on over, overdrive, making them more susceptible to anything. And it's like, dude, we have right now like nine, 800 to 900,000 Americans that are dying every single year from heart attacks alone, which is so easy to prevent. It's almost insulting to hear that number that it's so high. And I, it's sometimes comical for me to run into how many nurses and doctors I've run into that are on high blood pressure medication. I'm like, dude, this is so easy to manage. That's like the elementary entry level of what health is, you know? And if you can't tackle it at that elementary beginner level, like what the hell, like what's going on, you know, what's going on? And it's like, dude, like six, 50 to 60% of people will develop cancer in their lifetime in the US and half of those will die from it. But no one's worried about that. No one's worried about having 60% chance of catching cancer because of poor lifestyle and nutritional choices. Now, there are certain cases where it's, it's genetics, and, but those are rare compared to the overwhelming amount of cases that happen because of poor lifestyle and just poor management of the human mind and body throughout the lifetime. And, and they're not worried about 60% there, but they're worried about a 0.00001% chance of getting hospitalized for COVID, you know? And it's become like a national emergency. Where was the emergency before all this? You know, the financial cost. And like you mentioned and hinted, hinted at, dude, this COVID vaccine will stop you from possibly having complications that require hospitalization from COVID alone and possibly some of its variants. But it will not stop you from being vulnerable to the next virus, which will 100% happen at some point, because hello, that's like evolution 101. That's sure. like what's been going on uh, in the human race since, since day one. And just remember for all those people that think we're invincible or something, there have been 29 plus human species that were around at one point, and now there's only one. Okay. So everyone comes and goes in the human race, especially the homo sapiens are very, very new, only around 200,000 years old, which is, which is a very young species considering the planet has been around for about 4.5 billion years and then the universe much, much longer than that. And uh, it's like, dude, this, this COVID vaccine, it will just protect you from one minuscule thing. You can die from like a myriad of other things and you will die from a myriad of other things if you continue to be part of this nine out of 10 metabolically unhealthy crowd. Uh, you're dead anyways, dude. Your time is ticking. You know, I mean, be real with yourself, man. Stop being a delusional retard. Yeah, sorry. I tend to be more fired up with my language than Jason, but hopefully Jason balances me out here. So, but yeah, touching on that, that just really kind of ticked me off when people are like, ooh, like I'm healthy now. I got the vaccine, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm like, no, you're still a miserable, very sick individual, you know, that's unfortunately probably going to have kids and then teach their kids to be exactly the same way, which is very unfortunate and can be classified under child abuse, in my opinion. Uh, but do you have any other input to put on that one? I kind of got carried away a little bit emotional on that one. 
you know, I, I just going to invite to piggyback on what you were saying, Eugene, in the sense of inviting people to challenge one's own personal narrative and the narrative of, of others to really sit with that uh, and really ask oneself is, um, how can I take this um, personalized uh, as well as a collective pain and reevaluate self and reevaluate the cultural norms that I, I live within and under, um, et cetera, and use it as an opportunity for inventory. And where am I at? Uh, how can I uh, see where I am contributing to, uh, to my own pain and suffering in a way that I can start doing something about it in a way that um, I can start doing on Tuesday. What can, uh, you used to use this phrase in, when I was consulting and working with uh, a lot of clinicians uh, and a lot of leaders, what can you start doing by Tuesday that would be different than you are doing as a result of this conversation or because of this presentation or this training? And so that's where I would leave it is, uh, what can you take from this conversation for yourself? Um, can you just start drinking um, more uh, starting on Tuesday, metaphorically, or literally tomorrow's Tuesday, I guess, um, whenever this gets released. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think that it's those simple things. And then wherever there is any form of resistance, um, explore that. Can, just consider that versus being dismissive of it and assume that um, they're wrong and I'm right. So that's what I would say about that. Well, what's your take? I kind of like feel, uh, I was kind of raised for a short period by my grandma on an off-grid, like by uh, biodynamic farm in Ukraine. And I feel like she died, um, she died at like 84 or 86, I forgot exactly, uh, with literally only going to the hospital like a single time for her whole life. And that's when she gave birth to my mom. And she was genuinely like just very happy. I would still go visit her uh, often uh, to Ukraine and stuff of that sort, even uh, when I moved over here. So I was kind of thinking like a lot of times it's like, man, I feel like just almost living in society, especially how society is today, uh, it's like you almost start at like a B grade. And if you just mess up a little bit in terms of your health, if you just mess up a little bit, you quickly plummet into this like a C, D or F. You know what I mean? It's just very hard to like optimize. Uh, I feel like it's very hard to optimize your mental and physical health living in society altogether uh, as compared to living closer to how the human biological system has evolved to live, you know, like for example, uh, you know, 10,000 years ago before domestication of, of crops and animals happened. I mean, you're just like running around in a forest all day, for example, let's say in Europe, for instance, uh, you have a lot of downtime, you know, you're drinking like fresh water, eating basically just wild game, wild fish, and the occasional seasonal crops you would run into the wild crops etc cetera, etc cetera. and like look they didn't have like a 401k plan they didn't have a medical insurance program <laughs> they didn't have like a life guru a health coach personal trainer and they're yeah. like jacked like freaking all the time they can hunt mammoths with like they don't even have rifles with just like sticks uh and 
if you take out child mortality, I mean, they lived until like, you know, 50, 60, 70 years old, actually thriving and in full health. Now you have like 20 year olds, 30 year olds, just like completely falling apart. And with all this advanced medicine and advanced understanding of nutrition and this and that, and I'm like, dude, like something's not working. I don't care how much research is coming out on this. I think eventually what's going to happen is like, Hey, the, the human body has evolved to live this way. And if you just don't live this way, like glitches will happen, you know, and that's it. I don't know why they need to keep, keep doing so many studies on, on nutrition and physiology. I'm like, dude, like it's obvious what needs to be done already. You just need to do it. I don't know how else to say it. I mean, Jesus, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I think we might be in the generation that can choose, uh, do I want to go live off the grid? And I would say, or do I want to, do I want to live uh, on the grid and do everything I can to maximize my biology and chemistry, my physiology uh, within, um, within that paradox there uh, lies one, I, one of two paths, maybe there's more. Uh, I would probably say probably the next generation or so, uh, I don't know what living off the grid means. I mean, there's gonna be Wi-Fi, there's already Wi-Fi all over the place. So I don't know how you get away from it. So the question then becomes is inviting people to reconcile it. How do I wanna spend my life? Can I somehow figure out how do I live as close to nature with the way society is designed to self-current state as much as I can, or do I engage in it and manage it and do as many quote biohacks uh, as possible in order to manage uh, being in the system and being plugged in? Um, you know, and I think that ultimately is for everyone to, to consider, but it, you know, for me, what, what comes up when you were talking, Eugene, is in part is, that's how they lived back then, but that's not how we're living now. So how do we make it practical and how do we make it so that we can try to best navigate ourselves uh, to be as functional and as you have been advocating for, as metabolically sound as possible to live a life uh, in a way that um, serves us or works for us in a way that, that we feel comfortable with. And I think that's the challenge everyone, I would invite everyone to consider you know, I don't even know if a lot of people think, do I want to live off the grid or whatever that means for them? Uh, th that might mean, you know, Monday through Friday, I'm, I'm in the matrix and on the weekends, I'm out, you know, and I do my thing on the weekends or somewhere in between. So, uh, you know, can people consider even these concepts? And if they do, what are the implications for each one of us? And then collectively, what might that look like? Well, I haven't quite, well, outside of basically getting a taste of it in terms of getting, uh, uh, you know, living with my grandma uh, way back in the day, uh, I have been taking steps actually with the girlfriend to move kind of like what I refer to as like, quote unquote, like semi off grid. Now I haven't fully done it yet, but I am actually taking serious steps in doing it in the mm -hmm. sense that, you know, we finished like a 40 hour, like rifle certification course. I'm starting with a hunting mentor, like mid-March. And then we'll be buying some land uh, like two hours away from the city, you know? So you can have that kind of middle ground in terms of like being surrounded by nature 24 seven, not actually having to 
drive out to nature or go out of your way. It's just happening by default already. And then obviously through hunting, basically just rely actually on just living off of like wild game for the most part, uh, which is fairly not difficult to do, especially for when you're just looking to supply adequate amount of food for just two people. Um, So it's not that difficult actually to do. And I feel, you know, obviously working for yourself is huge in terms of being able to customize your schedule, especially working remotely. That I feel is like, if anyone that has a job right now can figure out a way to work remotely, that's already such a huge step in the right direction, simply because now all of a sudden you have an extra hour or two a day that you could at least devote to like more me time or whatever you feel you needed in your life at that moment to create more balance. Uh, And then just also, I feel just dealing with the bureaucracy or social politics that you typically run into is like nauseating. And I feel like a lot of people would probably agree with me. Um, And just distancing yourself, especially when, you know, the average person working there is probably full of like so much pathology. Just distancing yourself from that is already such a huge upgrade, I feel. So it's it's not that tough. it's not that tough. And also like a lot of people feel like they need to make like, a, like a, like a lot of money or a decent amount of money. And I presume that might be the case in some cities, but there is a good book called like the millionaire next door. I read it like a long time ago. I forgot the author, but it's a very popular book. And he outlined that like the majority of actually millionaires in the U S are like blue collar workers. And they make anywhere, I forgot the exact numbers. I'm probably going to misquote it here, but they make anywhere between like 90 to 110,000 a year. And they're not like your lawyers or your doctors, et cetera, et cetera. Most in terms of the quantity of millionaires actually are like the plumbers or they have a random carpentry business or something like that, something of that sort. And they just end up living uh, usually way below their means. So you describe like if a person could actually live in an upscale neighborhood, they actually purposely live in like a middle uh, class neighborhood or like vice versa as one way to kind of accumulate to their millions a lot faster, et cetera, et cetera. And as you mentioned, like they buy only used cars. They typically have like one car per household. Uh, and like a couple of, it's like it, so long ago, I already forgot exactly what was outlined there. But basically uh, a lot of times people are, I feel killing themselves just to live in this like upscale neighborhood or whatever, and just have like certain amount of materialistic possessions. But really, I feel just at the end of the day, it's all about like, man, what's really going to make you happy is like, are you feeling well? You know, (laughs) at the end of the day, are you feeling like physically and mentally well? Um, Are you like happy? Like at least most days, it doesn't have to be like every day. Are you like in a loving relationship? Um, All those like oftentimes like basic things are, what I feel really add a tremendous amount of value to it, you know, like is your physique good looking? Although, you know, aesthetics isn't everything. I'm pretty sure it would just add value to your life. You know, if you weren't like very obese and just like very fit, et cetera, et cetera. So. Um, Amen. I love it. Well, um, let's move on a little bit. We talked about like the medical industry um, for a while I do feel also like just, and it'll, we don't have to touch it into so much detail because a lot of it is overlapping here, but I do feel like the success rates and also like the fitness in the holistic industry is like very low overall as well. 
which kind of, once again, covers a lot of the points of why that's the case, which we already covered, but what's your, what's your kind of take on that? Um, you know, my theory is one part, um, still addicted to the Western model, but think of using uh, holistic health principles or practices with still that philosophy in mind that we can just supplement our way out of our problems. It's one theory that I have. Uh, another theory is, is that we still get to the root cause, which is me, me, myself, and I. Um, it takes, in my experience, a fair amount of willingness to look at yourself in the mirror. That doesn't change. And I don't care if it's holistic health, alternative medicine, Western medicine, um, Chinese medicine, whatever the, the medical model you're using, I still feel like it always comes down to the individual look, be willing to look at themselves in the mirror. Um, and that's why, for example, the concept of self-sabotage is such a pronounced and ingrained part of our human experience and experiences. And I don't think that our ability to sabotage ourselves stops because we choose a different medical model uh, to practice in. So that's how I feel about that. And ultimately, if we have false beliefs and false perceptions that drive our physiology at the root, uh, your beliefs don't discriminate between this model and that model. It just filters it all accordingly. And uh, that gets us down into why I think uh, we still struggle as a human, human, as human beings experience life. Gotcha. Well, do you, what would you do? Like, how do you work through clients um, self-sabotaging behavior? I know you do a lot of that for your work. Yeah. So uh, well, one of the things that I do uh, is uh, I use a personality assessment it's mine specifically is called the inner compass personality assessment. And it looks at nine different personality types. And from that, uh, I can then identify with the client, their false core or their primary false belief system that they have about themselves. Uh, and that they're false, uh, the primary, primary belief that is rooted in shame and that is also rooted in uh, fear. So it's this triangle psychological structure. So that's why I, I call it the false core, false core triangle. So it's a belief of self, uh, a core belief rooted in shame and another core belief that's rooted in fear. And so from that perspective, alters or is like putting on a pair of sunglasses, so to speak. And if you're wearing orange sunglasses, then everything that you're going to look outside of those sunglasses is going to be orange, no matter what the external environment is or is not. And then it helps me as a, as a health coach to look at people's patterns of thinking, feeling, and behaving and emoting. And from that, people, it helps me invite the client to see exactly how they self-sabotage, like very surgical-like. So for me, uh, my triangle is that I am imperfect and I have the shame of being bad and the fear of making mistakes. So um, 
one of the questions that I've asked myself or asked my clients that I've worked with is uh, very simply, if I could see and experience life beyond that triangle view and never have to do anything to quote, improve myself as a compensation for that, how do I feel in the body? And what I've experienced with myself and others is it brings up an, an immediate, typically an immediate existential crisis question. Well, I've only known myself as an improver because I'm trying to improve everything around me, myself and others and in the community as a compensation because deep down I see the world as imperfect. And yet when I'm inviting myself and others to take off those glasses, it's almost like asking, it's like trying to have a newborn baby trying to walk the first time. It feels confused, discombobulated, um, uncertain, and un feels like uncharted territory. I mean, those patterns are so ingrained. And so when I talk with clients about self-sabotage, really because those patterns are so ingrained that if it doesn't have an outlet to see the world that way, it will unconsciously find, you will find a way to look at that, the world that way. And therefore you will create situations and environmental factors that quote, um, you will need to improve it. So that's how I, for example, will self-sabotage myself is the need to always find something wrong because of my bias of imperfections, which then compels me to fix it. So if I don't have anything to fix, I'm in a painful conundrum. And rather than sitting and being able to experience that and go through a process of experiencing that and transmuting those experiences, uh, one is left without the skill to navigate that. The next thing you know, uh, they will disassociate from that pain and remerge with that need to improve. And then they'll undermine themselves and try to do something that says, I need to make an improvement. Now, whether that's weight, and it can shows up in all kinds of ways, relationships. I, I change one relationship for another because it's not perfect. Uh, it can deal with weight loss. If I'm not the ultimate Arnold Schwarzenegger physique, uh, then I find perfections. Then I'm on the wrong diet. Next thing I got to get on another diet or I got to work out that much harder. It is the inability to rest in knowing who and what a person is beyond their personality that people then engage this process of self-sabotage. That's kind of a lot of the work that I do with clients. Uh, but that personality assessment helps me and helps the client, helps themselves understand the facade or the illusion of who they think they are so that uh, they can feel safe. And so for me, coaching is helping them peel those onions and layer like an onion, peel the layers uh, to see who they've mistaken themselves to be rather than who they are. So it's a fun little, uh, fun little navigation, fun little, uh, diving into, so to speak. I was always wondering, it always kind of, um, you know, like when, let's say a person comes through, they're already like 30 or 40 years old. I mean, they have like so many layer upon layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of like social programming. Mm -hmm. It's like you have trouble distinguishing what's real and fake because they all look all the same. You know what I mean? Is it at all possible to... Uh, I forgot exactly what Walensky referred to it as, but uh, to really, at the end of the day, get to know yourself before all this, who you actually were before all the social pro programming took place. 
or is yeah. like damage control like the only op like damage control the only option basically you know yeah um i appreciate it it's a process uh it's you know the amount of conditioning uh the amount of addiction to our shame and fear uh in proportion to how much am I willing to challenge myself with curiosity and courage? I, I, I would like, I like courage and curiosity language as an antidote to shame and fear. That works for me. And to the degree which someone is willing to little by little um, peel the onions, uh, peel the layers, uh, I think there is uh, the ability to experience and to embrace what I think you're getting at. I know I have, what I think the challenge is, is that we've still at times will merge with an age regressed part of ourselves, or we're still feeling in this fight or flight mode and we easily go back to our old pattern. So at the end of the day, it is the unlearning of those conditionings. And, and because some of us have been doing it for 30, 40, uh, 15, 50 years, the same process that got us there for 50 years is going to be to some degree uh, an undoing. Uh, and it may take uh, maybe as much, if not less. I, I don't know. I, I have not said uh, here's the, the cycle time that it takes to resolve completely at the root of it. Uh, what I can say is, is that having and experiencing the peace prior to personality that you're alluding to I think is very much present in the present moment as we speak as an opportunity. If people can willing to de-identify or disrobe from the illusion of their beliefs and their ideas and their perceptions. Um, so there are a lot of exercises, spiritual, mental, emotional, whatever you want to call it, that you can do to introduce or begin to rewire yourself to experience yourself in different ways, rather than the, the hard conditioning that you always see yourself, i.e. through the lens of those of that false core triangle that I referred to, that putting on those orange glasses. It does afford you an opportunity to take those glasses off and see, if you will, all the other colors uh, of life. And I think over time, it, it, it's to me, it's no different than when you go to the gym. Um, when you go to the gym and you work out and you're introduced to a new movement pattern that you've never, ever done before, it's quite neurologically challenging. You look like a weeble wobble. You know, you're, you're trying to cue a client up with 10 different cues. You're trying to listen to one cue. They fix the one cue. They relax on the other cue that you just told them about. And it's almost like you're, you're keeping the plates from spinning. But as you keep on instructing them, they keep on uh, practicing and doing the time under tension and they may look like hell. But eventually, I think the most important thing is, are they resilient and willing to have a willingness with courage and curiosity to keep coming back to the gym and keep on practicing that exercise? And eventually their neurological system will just be habituated and take over. And now no longer are the, are the plates spinning weevil wobbly. Maybe they're spinning at... Uh, and they're 50% more sharp and clean um, and there's less stability issues and they don't have a naked spine and their transverse abdominus is engaged. Uh, the pelvic floor is engaged, et cetera. And then you just keep at it. Uh, and then next thing you know, you ask them to do that exercise six months later and next thing you know, they look fairly functional with it. 
So to me, it's the same process. I think just as much as getting up every day and engaging life with certain lifestyle factors, I have found it, at least for me, if you consider it as being a lifestyle factor of doing certain exercises and and, um, approaching life with a philosophy and and a mental approach, but that's not just a philosophical woo-woo stuff, but actually practical exercises that you can do that allows you to relax you from your conditioning. I think that allows for the deconditioning and allows one to experience life, I will say holistically, whatever that might mean uh, for, the, for the listener, but it gives them a broader perspective to see, world, to see the world through a floodlight versus a flashlight. Well, uh, one, one last thing I want to, just from your personal experience, do you find like, if they continue to stay in the same environment as they come to get coaching from you, the, I guess the process or progression is, is, is made very, very difficult because I just presume if they continue to stay in the same environment that kind of led to a lot of the issues, they're just getting reinforced more and more by that environment. And they're only seeing you like two hours a week versus working 10 hours a week in that environment. I presume like if you do have a, in my honest opinion, if you do have like a serious health issue, like I think it would be ideal in my, in my opinion to just basically completely switch your environment that kind of most likely gave rise to that issue. And obviously you want to change the belief system that led it, that led you to perceive that it's acceptable to be in that environment to begin with, obviously, but uh, it's like trying to get someone off drugs, but they're living in the neighborhood where all their friends are using drugs, you know? It's like, come on, that's not going to happen, you know? Yeah, so I would say it's uh, not probable. Uh, Maybe. Uh, And maybe they do have an environment that's very supportive. Uh, And I've experienced um, where one partner is trying to uh, let's just say eat, eat more of a paleo lifestyle and the other still wants to eat fruity pebbles and Cheerios and, and wonder bread. So can that lead into some cognitive and emotional dissonance for both? Absolutely. Um, and what I've found that over time, if I think of myself is it's incremental, uh, you know, you can't take on everything and just all of a sudden move to you know, two hours south or north, wherever you live right now, and just live off the grid. So to me, it, it is a, an unwinding, like you take off the winter coat, then you take the sweater off, and you take your shirt off, you take your t-shirt off, etc. And I have found that life takes care of itself. It just evolves if you're willing to lean into life uh, and what comes up, the, the pros, the benefits, and the painful disrobing of how we are attached to what we wear as a metaphor and that ultimately um, life offers these different paths to take and little by little you know you you shed those things Um, you know for me leaving healthcare I think I was still in healthcare eight ten years uh, maybe eight or nine years after I had that pivotal moment I put my feet on the other side of the bed and I knew from that point forward, once within six to 12 months, I lost all the weight. I was totally on point, but I didn't implement all of the, for example, those six foundational principles at one time, but I was systematically doing them one at a time 
made them as part of my lifestyle and moved on to the next, moved on to the next, so that the energy I had for change was, was in proportion. But it still took me eight years, if you will, if, if, I, if, if I thought consciously that my goal is to get out of healthcare, the healthcare system and be my own holistic health coach, still took me eight years to get out of that profession. And for some, it might be their relationship. It might take 20 years. It might take 15 years for them to come to terms with, um, you know, what they may need to do for their overall uh, health and vitality. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. That is important to mention that it often does take quite a while. Although I've known many people that just boom, bailed out of nowhere. <laughs> yes. I think Jerry, Jerry Kaikendola was a good example of that, you know? Um, I would love that. I apologize. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. And I would say, I'm really curious about people who ripped the bandaid off and ask what was the last five to 10 years before they ripped the bandaid off and what appears to be just jumping off the deep end in that moment. You know, uh, what was the what was the groundwork that was done up until that point? I get really curious about. And is there things such as spontaneous healing and spontaneous just taking action? Absolutely. Uh, I can totally uh, appreciate that as well. Yeah. Well, are there um, are there any other uh, subjects you'd like to cover before we recall it a day? Um, I feel uh, pretty complete. Uh, We've had a, we touched on a bunch of different topics, which I appreciate, Eugene. Uh, it was a cool conversation. Cool. Well, thank you. Thank you for being a guest, Jason. It's good to see you again. Yes, sir. Cheers. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. If you've ever had trouble losing weight, or you've lost weight, but still didn't have the ideal body or health you're aiming for, please feel free to reach out anytime and book an assessment. Eugene will work with you to cover your goals in detail, see what's holding you back, and go from there. In the meantime, feel free to check out the countless testimonials on Eugene's website in the link below. In the testimonial section you'll notice everyone has various backgrounds, are of all different ages, and all have had different challenges in their life, but they all have one thing in common, they were all able to find their health and achieve their ideal body. You're also welcome to add yourself to the Facebook group in the link below. There you'll have access to the live videos that Eugene does weekly on Sundays and other helpful content. Thank you again for tuning in.